You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Please turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, to chapter 7. If you are new here this morning, and I do see a couple of new faces, we are in the middle of an ongoing, uh, insufferable, never-ending, and almost eternal study of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are in chapter 7. And as a church, we are determined to suck every last bit of vanity and discouragement out of this book before we let it go. That's what we're doing. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Once you've found your place, let's bow together before we begin. Gracious Lord, we are thankful for your word, and we are dependent upon you to give us the illumination that we need to rightly understand the truth of Scripture. And that is especially true, and certainly true, with the difficult passages, which are difficult to interpret, difficult to understand, even in their context. And we are faced with one of those this morning, and so we pray that you would help us to see this passage as it is in truth, to understand it rightly. Keep our minds and our hearts open and active and alert this morning, we pray, and give us the illumination that we need from your Holy Spirit in the power and by your grace. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we left off last week with uh, verse 14, and we're picking it up today at verse 15. And last week we talked about how life is bent. Things don't always go as we hope that they would go. We want them to go. There are crooks in life and twists and turns. We plan one series of events or one course of action and uh, things fold out the way that they shouldn't or the way that we don't expect and we end up going a completely different direction. So life is filled with, as Solomon says in verse 14, days of adversity and days of prosperity and all of these come from the hand of God. Sometimes bad things happen. God allows these bad things to happen or sends these these things that we think are bad into our life for our good and for His glory and in order that He might keep the future unknown to us. And so life is this mixture of good days and bad days. And And last week, that's what we looked at, and after the message last week, sometime between uh, me closing in prayer and and stepping down from here, and me walking out of this building, I bumped into something, because as I was walking out of this building, I pulled my phone out of my pocket, and the screen was completely shattered. And not just like a crack, I mean like somebody had hit it with a hammer. And I was looking at my screen, and with a perplexed look on my face, obviously trying to figure out when it was during cleaning up and unstacking chairs and stacking chairs and all of that, that I must have bumped into something. I don't remember hitting anything hard enough to break my phone. And I have dropped my phone dozens of times and thought to myself, that's it, that's the end of it, that's the screen right there. And pick it up and I'm surprised that the screen is not shattered. You've had this happen, right? And then I don't even know what I touched or what mosquito landed on my leg, but my screen shattered. So I was, I was going through the whole series of events in my head trying to figure out what I had done And when I had done it, looking at my screen, and a friend was standing there, and he said, well, Jim, that's just a crook in your stick. (laughs) Now, I share that with you so that you can see what the gift of encouragement looks like when it is employed in the power of the Holy Spirit with a very gracious demeanor. And And that, truth be told, there are a lot bigger crooks and a lot bigger sticks than that, right? Mostly, that was just an inconvenience. $22, and two days later, I had a replacement screen in the mail to me. I replaced it myself. It was no big deal. Their life is filled with much bigger crooks, twists and turns, days of adversity than just a shattered cell phone screen. That's 
that's small in the grand scheme of things. Solomon gives us an example in chapter 7 of a really big crook in the stick. It is in verse 15. I want you to notice what he says. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Now that's crooked, isn't it? When the righteous die young and the wicked live on forever and ever, and it seems like their life never comes to an end, and they prosper in it, and, and, and they enjoy it, and it seems as if the, the winds that should bring about the weeping of the whirlwind to them never land in their lap. And they get away with their wickedness over and over and over again, and even prosper in it, and yet the righteous suffer under affliction. It seems as if the righteous only have the days of adversity. And so Solomon observes this. This is a big crook in the stick. Now I want you to read. We're going to read verses 15 through verse 22. Because I think that all of this is tied together. Even though today we're only looking at 15 through 18 in our attempt to make this a never-ending and insufferable study in Ecclesiastes. We will get to verses 19 to 22 next week. But it's all tied together. We're only going to have time to look at 15 through 18. But I want to read all the way through verse 22. So read with me. Verse 15. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be exceedingly wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Read verse 16 with me again. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Now go ahead and pinch yourself just to make sure that you're not dreaming that you read that in your Bible. What does that mean? Do not be overly righteous? Is it even possible to be overly righteous? Do not be exceedingly wise. Is it possible to be too wise? And what does Solomon mean when he says that being overly wise and exceedingly righteous might end up bringing about your ruination? You don't want to ruin yourself. Why would you want to ruin yourself by being righteous and wise? That's not the type of advice that we'd expect to see in Scripture, is it? It seems completely out of place. This is, in Ecclesiastes, the most difficult text to interpret. The most difficult text in Ecclesiastes. If at some point prior to this I have said of some previous verse that that verse was the most difficult verse in Ecclesiastes to interpret, I was entirely wrong. This verse is the most difficult verse in Ecclesiastes to interpret. And if I say at some future point of some future verse in Ecclesiastes that that verse is the most difficult verse to interpret, pay me no heed because this verse is the most difficult verse in Ecclesiastes to interpret. And if we were a typical church, like a seeker-sensitive stuff-and-fluff type of a church where we just skipped around from book to book, week after week, and never really were any, any book more than two Sundays in a row, if that were our, our modus operandi, if that's what we did, we would never come to a passage like this. There is not a seeker-sensitive pastor of a fluff-and-stuff church anywhere in this country who, if he preached a hundred years, would ever choose this text. Not one. I guarantee it. In fact, I would be willing to bet you, if I were a betting man and I'm not, a steak dinner, that you could not find a seeker-sensitive church <laughs> pastor anywhere in this country who has preached on this text. You would never choose it. But since... We're not typical, and since we begin at the beginning of a book and we go through to the end of the book, 
We can't very well skip a passage like this just because it's difficult, can we? We have to address it. And so, I rush in where angels fear to tread, and we're going to tackle this passage today. It is a difficult passage. So, let us begin with verse 15, and and here's a little bit of an outline of what we're going to be looking at from verses 15 through 22, because I say this, this whole passage really goes together. Solomon observes, first of all, in verse 15, a concerning phenomenon. That is, something that he sees that is common to us, that we see, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked prolonging their lives in their wickedness. He observes this concerning phenomenon. Then in verses 16 to 18, we're going to see Solomon offers us a common perception, a common perception on this concerning phenomenon. And then next week in verses 19 and 20, he gives us a correct perspective. And then in verses 21 to 22, a convincing proof. So we're just looking today at verses 15 through verse 18. Let's look first of all at what Solomon observes concerning this common uh, concerning phenomenon. Verse 15, he says, I've seen everything during my futile life under the sun. Uh, the word futility there, this life of futility, is the same word that's translated vanity or emptiness or vain in other passages in Ecclesiastes. So he's using that again to describe the whole specter of his life. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility, and here's what he observes. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. This, I believe, is an example that Solomon brings up of what it means to live in a broken and bent world. He observes that back in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who is able to straighten what he has bent? What God has made crooked. He sends us, verse 14, we're to consider this because He sends us days of prosperity and days of adversity. God has made the one as well as the other. This is an evidence of a broken world. Do you want another evidence of a bent and broken world? Sometimes the righteous do not live long and abundant and healthy and happy and whole lives. Sometimes the righteous are cut down in their righteousness while they are doing even righteous things. Sometimes the righteous do what is right and they suffer for it. Doesn't that frustrate you? And sometimes the wicked do wickedness, and they get away with it. And this is not something that Solomon, I don't think he had just one guy in mind as he's describing this, not just one example. This is something that is so common to Solomon and to us that everybody here could probably think of a hundred examples of this happening. A lot of our examples might overlap, but we know that this is It seems that life could be described more in terms of verse 15 than it really is in terms of the righteous prospering and it going well with them and the wicked getting what comes to them. So much so that it's not even believers who make this observation. Uh, Mark Twain, actually, he wrote a short story called The Story About the the Little Bad Boy. The Story About the Little Bad Boy. And I I saw this story referenced this week as I was reading through some commentaries in Ecclesiastes. I thought, that is curious. So I went online to find it. I ended up buying the, the complete works of Mark Twain for $1.99 on Kindle. $1.99. Like, why do you say of the former days, why were they better than these? Right? It is not of wisdom that you say this. The complete works of Mark Twain for $1.99? What a great time that we live in. So I found the, little, the story of the little boy, uh, the bad little boy, the, the story of the bad little boy. And I read it. It took me like five minutes. It's, it's, it's great. It's a delight. Here's how the story begins. Once there was a bad little boy whose name was Jim. Though, if you will notice, you will find that bad little boys are nearly always called James in your Sunday school books. It was strange, but it is still true that this one was called Jim. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I wasn't too impressed with that part of the story, but it gets better. It gets better as we work our way through this. So, in this, in this story of the bad little boy named Jim, is obviously one of them, <laughs> In this story, he, uh, Mark, Mark Twain goes and talks about how this, this little bad boy named Jim never got what was coming to him as the Sunday books, as he called them, or the Sunday school books would say. And he's really answering 
a, a moralistic teaching that sometimes creeps into Christianity, and we can be guilty of adopting this way of thinking, that when we do good things, we earn God's favor and good things come to us. And then when we do bad things, we earn God's disfavor and bad things come to us. So little bad boy Jim does something that he disobeys his parents, and so bad things happen. Therefore, don't be like Jim. Instead, be like Susie, who does the good thing and obeys her parents, and the good things happen to her. And see, sometimes we can fall into the trap of teaching our children this. You do bad, bad things will happen. You do good, good things will happen. And then children start to grow up and realize, you know, I can get away with a lot of bad things. Bad things don't happen to me. And I do a lot of good things, and sometimes bad things start happening to me when I do the right thing. And, and they begin to reject our moralistic teaching. Well, Mark Twain was reacting against that. And so you'll hear this as he gives example after example from the life of the little bad boy named Jim when Jim did bad things and bad things didn't happen to him. So here's an example that Mark Twain offers. Once he climbed up in Farmer Acorn's apple tree to steal apples and the limb didn't break and he didn't fall and break his arm and get torn by the farmer's great dog and then languish on a sickbed for weeks and repent and become good. Oh no. He stole as many apples as he wanted and came down all right. And he was all ready for the dog too and knocked him endways with a brick when he came to tear him. It was a very strange, nothing like it ever happened in those mild little Sunday school books. But the strangest thing that ever happened to Jim was the time, and by the way, he, he, he gives a whole bunch of, a series of these kind of examples from the life of Jim. One of them is Jim steals something from his teacher and he doesn't get caught. Instead, he frames the other, another little boy by planting the evidence in the other little boy's hat and, and his locker, and the other little boy gets found out, and he gets thrashed with the lashes. And Jim knew that this was going on, and Jim never got it, but the innocent boy did, and Jim never stopped it because, as Mark Twain says, the other little boy was moral and upright, and Jim hated those moral and upright boys, so he let the other little boy take the thrashing for him. Here's another example. But the strangest thing that ever happened to Jim was the time he went boating on Sunday and didn't get drowned. And that other time that he got caught out in the storm when he was fishing on Sunday and he didn't get struck by lightning. Why, you might look and look through all the Sunday school books from now till next Christmas and you would never come across anything like this. Oh no, you would find that all the bad boys who go boating on Sunday invariably get drowned. And all the bad boys who get caught out in the storms when they're fishing on Sunday infallibly get struck by lightning. Boats with bad boys in them always upset on Sunday, and it always storms when the bad boys go fishing on the Sabbath. How this Jim ever escaped is a mystery to me. He's observing the same thing that Solomon observed, by the way. Now, how does it turn out with Jim? Here's how the little short story of a little bad boy named Jim turns out. The final paragraph. And he grew up and married and raised a large family and got wealthy by all manner of cheating and rascality. And now he is the infernalist, wickedest scoundrel in his native village and is universally respected and belongs to the legislature. <laughs> I did not make that up. I told you the story gets better. Here is the closing sentence of the story. So you see, there never was a bad James in the Sunday school books that had such a streak of luck as this sinful Jim with the charmed life. See, Jim did everything bad, and he never reaped the consequences of it. Mark Twain makes us laugh at something that is really no laughing matter. When, it, when a, a, a popular athlete murders his wife and gets away with it, we're indignant over that. When the rapist walks because of some stupid technicality, or some judge who thinks he's smarter than the law, and he gets away with it, we are indignant over that. When the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer and they are afflicted, we're indignant over that. And we want to slam our fist down and say, this is not right. This is not fair. I have seen the wicked prolong their days in their wickedness and even go on and join the legislature. And I have seen the righteous perish in their righteousness. 
This is not right. This is a bent and broken world. That's what Solomon is observing in verse 15. It is contrary to what we would expect. It's contrary to what we'd expect from Scripture. What does Scripture promise us? What does Scripture say? See, what Solomon is observing here and what we observe in this world is different than what, than, than some of the things that Scripture says. Let me give you an example. Ecclesiastes, sorry, not Ecclesiastes, Exodus 20 verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That your days may be prolonged in the land. It seems as if that is a promise that if you honor your father and mother, you'll live a long and prosperous life in the land of God's promise. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40, So you shall keep His statutes and His commandments which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving for you for all time. Obey the Lord and His commandments, and it will go well with you, and you will live a long and prosperous life. That's what the, that's what the covenant promised, right? That's what God promised in those passages. And then we look, in, even in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 12, it says, Wisdom is protection, just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Wisdom is supposed to make our lives longer. Righteousness is supposed to make our lives longer. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And then we look at the statements in Scripture that describe the wicked. The wicked will be cut off from the land. They will be remembered no more. They will perish forever. They will go off into the pit in everlasting destruction. Remember that is how the, the psalm that we read at the beginning of our service, Psalm 55, ends. Psalm 55, verse 23, But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I trust in you. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. That seems to be the promise or the expectation. Proverbs 10, verse 30, The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The wicked will be cut off. There is a part, something in the heart of every righteous person that longs to see the wicked cut off. That is a right affection that we would have. To long to see the wicked judged. I want that. How much better would our lives be if those who do wickedness were cut off before they ever ran across a bridge and drove over innocent civilians and stabbed people to death in cafes, set off bombs and done all kinds of that type of wicked stuff? How much better would our lives be? How much more safe and secure and enjoyable and prosperous would our lives be if the wicked were cut off and destroyed, removed from the land before they ever had a chance to do that? It'd be a greater world, wouldn't it? A better world? A better quality world? A more godly world? We would enjoy that. We ought to long and to delight in seeing the wicked judged. That is a right and proper affection. That is an affection that God Himself has as He is angry with the wicked all day long and He desires their destruction. And He will do that when it is right and when it is proper, when it is just, when it is good in His timing. Those are proper affections. But in the meantime, man, I've seen the righteous cut down in his righteousness and the wicked prosper and even prolong his days in his wickedness. And this just doesn't seem right. Notice that Solomon here is observing the same thing that Asaph observed in Psalm 73, the psalm that is about the prosperity of the righteous or the wicked. Asaph observed that. I was envious of the wicked when I saw their prosperity. Their bodies are fat. They die at ease. They die in comfort. Things go well with them. Their life is one long, enjoyable uh, a pleasure. And then when they die, even their death is at ease. And yet the righteous are not so. The righteous are afflicted every day, chastened every morning, Asaph says. And he even gets to the point where he questions, was it in vain that I have washed my hands and kept my conscience pure? If this is what the righteous get and that is what the wicked get, wouldn't it be more, wouldn't it be more beneficial and, and more productive to be wicked instead of being righteous? 
And Habakkuk wondered that, and Job wondered that, and Jeremiah wondered that, and we all wondered that at one point, don't we? Can we all sympathize with that? And yet we understand and know that justice will be done, if not in this life, in the next, because we know that every right will be made uh, will be rewarded and every wrong will be made right. That is our hope and that is our confidence. And if all of our hope is in this life and this life of alone, we are most all men most to be pitied. So we look forward to the day when that will ultimately happen. But Solomon doesn't necessarily have that perspective in Ecclesiastes. He's looking at this again from under the sun. So that is the concerning phenomenon that he saw. It is something that has been observed by the righteous and, by the way, even the unrighteous all the way through human history. Mark Twain got it. Mark Twain saw it. He made a humorous story about it, but it really is no laughing matter. Now let's look at Solomon's offer. He gives us a common presumption, verses 16 to 18. And this is where we get into some difficulty. This is the, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, this is the most difficult passage in Ecclesiastes to interpret. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read through these verses one more time, and then we're gonna, I'm going to make three observations just about the verses themselves those observations will help us to kind of navigate the possible interpretations of the passage. And the goal of this is that as we work our way through this, not only that we would come to what it is that Solomon means by this, but we may also see the process by which we handle and approach perplexing and challenging passages of Scripture. There, there, is, a, there is a way of understanding this that is perfectly righteous and good, and we need to understand what that is, but also how we think through the passage itself. So we'll begin in verse 16. Let's read it again. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. I want you to notice the problems that this passage raises for us. Because Solomon says we're not to be overly righteous, we're not to be overly wise, because that might lead to our ruin. <laughs> That's just That statement itself is perplexing, is it not? But then you get to verse 17 where he says, do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. That seems to imply that as long as you're not excessively wicked, you can be a little wicked, just don't go overboard in your wickedness. And verse 18 makes it even more difficult because Solomon says, the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. It is good to grasp one and not let go of the other. What is the one and the other that Solomon has in mind? Verses 16 and 17. It, is, it seems as if Solomon is saying, it is good to grasp righteousness without letting go of wickedness. And it is good to grasp wisdom without letting go of folly. And this is what it means to fear God. You have a handful of wickedness and a handful of righteousness. You have a handful of folly and a handful of wisdom. And you kind of take a middle-of-the-road approach and just keep your feet in both camps. That's what fearing God is. See how perplexing all this is? All right, now here are the observations that I want you to make. And I want you to store this away in the back of your mind because you're going to need some of this in a little bit later when we work our way through the possible interpretations. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice how verse 16 and verse 17 are strictly parallel. Not just a few ideas in common. There is a strict parallelism between verses 16 and verse 17. So he says in verse 16, well, both, verse, both 16 and 17 begin with, do not be excessively. And then verse 16 is righteous, verse 17 is wicked. And do not be, is common in both verses, overly wise and fool. So righteousness and wickedness are set in contrast to one another. And if you just wrote these verses out in one line, each one of them, you would see that word by word they follow one another. That is, It is almost the po strictest possible parallelism that Solomon could make. And then both of them end with a question. The question in verse 16, why should you ruin yourself? The question in verse 17, why should you die before your time? So they're very very tightly parallel, and here's why this is significant. 
It's significant because however it is that we take verse 16, which is really probably the most perplexing verse of the whole thing, however it is that we take that verse, we also have to consistently interpret verse 17 as well because the parallelism is so strict and so tight. So you can't, you can't allegorize or spiritualize or take verse 16 in one way and then totally flip and take verse 17 in another way. That might not make sense to you right now, but just store it away in the back of your brain. And I'll ask you a little bit later on to pull that out and remember it. Here's the second observation. That righteousness and wisdom are connected just as foolishness and wickedness are connected. Now, the righteousness and wisdom are mentioned in verse 16. These are good things. Although it seems that Psalm is saying that you can't you can have too much of these good things. And he also seems to suggest that those good things would end up ruining you. But then notice in verse 17 that wickedness and folly go together as well. Those are the bad things, and Solomon warns against being too wicked and against being a fool. Third, I want you to notice that verse 18 combines them both and seems to suggest that we have one and not let go of the other. So however it is that we interpret verse 16 and verse 17, verse 18 clearly says that we need to have a little bit of both. So the whole thing is real perplexing, right? So those are our three observations. There's a tight parallelism between 16 and 17. Righteousness and wisdom are combined and wickedness and folly are combined. And then third, verse 18 seems to suggest that we need to have both of these. What are the possible interpretations of the passage? I'm going to give you three of them. I'm going to work through them. I'm going to to give you the possible understanding of the passage and to tell you what I think are the weaknesses of each one of these positions. Before I begin, let's be clear. None of these three positions are heretical. All of these are within the pale of orthodoxy, and you're going to find good men on every, from every theological stripe who would land in one of these three positions. Okay? So here's the first possibility, that Solomon is just being cynical. In other words, this is Solomon going back to his cynical old under-the-sun self. He's told us how great wisdom is in the first 14 verses, but he just cannot help himself. He's like, like a sow in the mud, has to return back to the mud, stick his face back in the dirt, get back under that under-the-sun perspective. And even though he's told us that wisdom is great for 14 verses in chapter 7, now he's got to go back on that and say, well, it might be great, but look, the, wisdom die, uh, the wise die too. The righteous are cut down in their righteousness. The wise die even though they're wise. So really what good is wisdom? Probably better not to have any, as much wisdom as you might think. So this is just cynical Solomon flipping and flopping back and forth between talking about how great wisdom is and then disparaging wisdom. That would be one possible interpretation. It's just, again, his under-the-sun perspective. Tremper Longman, in, uh, he's not really orthodox, but Tremper Longman in his commentary, his exegetical commentary on this suggests that. Here's what I think is the problem with that interpretation, that it's just cynical Solomon flipping and flopping back about the, the benefits of wisdom. It doesn't seem to fit the flow of the context. You see, verses 1 to 14 is, is wisdom literature. It's, this is better than that. And wisdom is an advantage. And he says in verses 13 and 14, verses, uh, verse 11 and 12, sorry, he says verse 11 and 12 that wisdom, like money, is a good thing because it is an advantage to those who see the sun because wisdom, like money, is protection and it preserves the lives of its possessors. He has spoken, spoken glowingly of wisdom. And then you'll notice down in verse 19 that he says another positive thing about wisdom. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So it seems as if this whole passage really is about the benefits and advantages of wisdom. It seems completely out of place for Solomon to suddenly become like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and completely flip his perspective on wisdom and to say, but don't have too much of it. You don't want to have too much of it because it could ruin you. Now, although Solomon has been very honest about the limitations of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, remember this. He has told us that wisdom does not guarantee a long life for you. Wisdom does not guarantee that you will be remembered. Wisdom does not guarantee that people will listen to you. Wisdom does not guarantee that everything will go well with you always. Wisdom does not guarantee that you will never die. 
He has said all of those things, and all of those things are true. But though he has been honest about the real-world limitations of wisdom, Solomon has never said that wisdom is a bad thing. These are the limitations of it, but Solomon has never come out and said, therefore, disparage it. You don't want to have too much of it. He still commends wisdom, even though he is aware of its weaknesses. So that, that doesn't seem as if it fits the flow of the context. That would be my objection to that. There is a second possibility. The second one is this, that Solomon is speaking of a pretended righteousness in verse 16. So that when Solomon says in verse 16, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise, why should you ruin yourself? He is talking about a feigned, pretended self-righteousness. Not real righteousness, but that air of righteousness, the Pharisee kind of righteousness. You've met these people, they're just too righteous by a half, and even though they, su- they seem to suggest that they're aware of their faults and their shortcomings, and they even boast in their own weaknesses, that you kind of get the feeling that they're not really convinced that they're all that bad after all. They just, they're righteous, but they're just a little bit too righteous. You know who I'm talking about? And no need to point fingers, just you know who I'm talking about, these type of people. The, a pretended fake air of righteousness. Some suggest that that's what Solomon is saying. And so he is saying, don't be, you know, overly righteous, overboard outwardly righteous, just in the air of righteousness, and excessively so, in a pretended righteousness. And instead, and you don't want to be wicked, but instead take a middle-of-a-road approach. And according to this interpretation, verse 18 would be saying you want to avoid the extreme of wickedness because that might cut your life short. And you want to avoid the extreme of sort of an over-airing, self-pretended righteousness and instead take the middle of the road, which would be actually true holiness and righteousness. And in an attempt to keep Solomon orthodox, some people have suggested this. Now, again, this is not a heretical position. John MacArthur, in his study notes of his Bible study, takes this position. So does Matthew Henry. So does Douglas O'Donnell. Uh, so does um, uh, Philip Graham Ryken. Every other good commentary that I had uh, offered this position. Here's what I think is the weakness to this. Now, remember that piece of information I told you to put into the back of your minds? You're going to need it later. This is the time. The strict parallelism between verse 16 and verse 17 creates a problem with this interpretation. And guys who hold this position acknowledge this. The strict parallelism is this. If in verse 16, Solomon is describing a pretended righteousness, what is he describing in verse 17? A pretended wickedness? If in verse 16 it is self-righteousness, the air of righteousness, is it self-wickedness and the air of wickedness in verse 17? Do you see the strict parallelism? If you interpret the one verse one way, you are forced to try and interpret the other verse the other way. And then it breaks down. It doesn't work. Solomon is not warning against a pretended wickedness. It seems that in verse 18, he's actually describing real wickedness. And therefore, it seems as if, or verse 17, is describing real wickedness. Therefore, it seems as if in verse 16, he's describing real righteousness. That I think is the, that I think is, that is the weakness of that suggestion. Now, there is a third possibility. In all of my reading of commentaries and my study aids and working through the passage this week, I didn't come across this third possibility. In fact, in all my commentaries, I was presented only with the first two that I have offered to you. And guys on each side would critique the other side and acknowledge the weakness of their own position. And in my own mind, there was a third possibility that kept banging around in my cranium. And I never saw anybody else suggest it. And I'm very hesitant to ever step out and think that I've seen something here that godly men for 2,000 years or 3,000 years have never seen and to suggest that to you. And then as I was reading through Spurgeon's Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, he suggested this interpretation of verse 16. And I thought, oh, phew. 
I'm not, I'm not a lunatic after all. There's another good godly man out there who saw this and suggested it a couple hundred years before I ran across this, or at least I was thinking of it. And so I'm suggesting this to you. Now, if Spurgeon believes it doesn't mean it's necessarily true, just because Spurgeon believes it, but at least I can present the third option to you um, without having to confess that this is the product of my own diseased brain. Because somebody else, I've saw this as well. So this is the third option, which I don't think has any weaknesses. And here is the third option. In verse 16 through 18, Solomon is rhetorically raising an objection that somebody might make based upon his objection or his observation in verse 15. So he's playing devil's advocate in a sense. Let's back up and walk through chapter 7 again, and you'll see how this would fit. The first 14 verses is answering the question of who knows what is good for a man during the few years of his life. Solomon says, God does. Wisdom presents this to us. Because this is better than that, and this is better than that. Wisdom is an advantage here, the blessings of wisdom, and so pursue wisdom. That's the lesson of the first 14 verses. And, and just in, less, and, and, and in being honest about the limitations of wisdom in a fallen world, he makes the observation of verse 15, sometimes the righteous are cut down in their righteousness, and sometimes the wicked prolong their lives in their wickedness. So what would, what would the critic say? What would the objector say? The objector would give voice... <coughs> To verses 16 to 18. The objector would say, well then, it seems best to, to not be too righteous or too wicked. The objector, the unbeliever would say, I, I think I'll just keep a foot in both of these worlds. I'll do enough wickedness to have fun, but enough righteousness that I don't fear, in the, fear the danger of God's judgment. So I'll just kind of keep my head down and it seems like the, the righteous perish quickly, so I don't want to be too righteous. It seems like the wicked pursue a lifestyle that cuts their life short. I don't want to be too wicked. So the fear of God then must be that I have both of these things and I come forth with both of these. I'll have a foot in both worlds, have a handful of folly and a handful of wisdom and just play it safe all the way through life. That, seemed, that is, by the way, the thinking of many in the ancient world and a lot of the Eastern mindset is that sort of balance to life, just a little righteousness, a little wickedness. Don't go to extremes <coughs> in any of these areas. That would have been a common mindset of Solomon's day and it seems to me that he is raising that rhetorically so that he can answer it. That, that the objector, the unbeliever, would give voice to verse 16 and verse 17. This is how a pagan would think. And Solomon is saying, no, wisdom is still better. And this fits the context because look at verse 19. He jumps back into the benefits of wisdom in verse 19. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. You, you think it's good to... You, would you as the objector say, too much wisdom can ruin you? No, he says in verse 19. Wisdom is better than the strength of ten wise men in a city. Yes, wisdom has its limitations. Yes, you might be cut down. Wisdom is still better. That's what he's saying. You think it's possible to be too righteous? Look at the correction of verse 20. Indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. There's no danger you're going to be too righteous. Don't worry about that. Now, an unbeliever might say, I don't want to be too righteous. right? And, and normally, pagans, that's how they view us. They try and walk with the Lord. You're just too righteous for my, my taste. A pagan would say, I don't want to be too righteous because that just doesn't seem right. You run into danger of really ruining your life. Make a, make a ruin of your life if you're too righteous. But I don't want to be too wicked and have my life cut short. That's how a pagan would think. This is what Solomon is doing in verses 16 to 18. I think he's just giving voice rhetorically to how somebody might react to his observation of verse 15. And then in verses 19 through 22 and really the rest of this chapter, he is answering that objection. That, I think, is what is going on. Now, which one of those... Three do I hold to? Obviously the last one. But I would say again, 
If you think it's one of the first two, that doesn't make you a heretic. Uh, This, I think, raises the fewest objections. It fits the context. It makes sense of what Solomon is saying. And it certainly would fit everything that he's saying here about wisdom. So now we are out of time in terms of going through the rest of this passage. We've walked through our three possible interpretations. So what then should be our takeaway from this passage? We should remember this. We live in a bent and broken world, don't we? And we have to be honest about that. We look around us and we see what's going on. We see a culture in decline. We see a civilization crumbling. We see nations teetering on the brink of financial, cultural, economic, moral, social destruction. And those wicked individuals who lead those nations seem hell-bent, as it were, on driving further off of the cliff and continuing in the things that seem to be pursuing destruction. And we all look at that and we say, this is a broken and bent world. This is not right. And we see everywhere signs of things that are not fair and not just and not good and not true. And the righteous react against this. And Solomon's counsel to us is, consider the work of God. Yes, this is a bent world. The greatest example of that bentness is the fact that the righteous are not always rewarded in this life and the wicked are not always punished in this life. How do you navigate a bent and broken world? Solomon is commending to us wisdom. So someone might object, but wisdom doesn't guarantee long life. You're right, Solomon would say, but wisdom is better. So pursue wisdom. Consider the work of God. Understand that He is working out all of these things in a bent world by His providence, according to His wisdom, for our good, for His glory. Trust Him in it and pursue wisdom. Wisdom, though it doesn't guarantee a long life for you, is still better than the strength offered by ten ruling people in a city. Wisdom is still good. Yes, but there's no guarantee that it will be fair for me. You're right, there's not. But wisdom is better. I have no guarantee of a long life. That's right. But wisdom is better. There's no guarantee that everything will go great in my life, for my entire life, or that I will escape suffering. You're right, there is no guarantee. There are no guarantees. But wisdom is better. And so Solomon would commend to us that we pursue wisdom, that we love wisdom, that we cherish wisdom, that we mine for it as silver and for gold because it is more precious than gold, it is more precious than riches, uh, riches, certainly riches, it is more precious than riches or any other thing that this world can offer us. It is the best thing. That is what he is offering to us in a vain world. Yes, everything is vanity when looked at under the sun, but the divine wisdom that God's word offers is better than anything else. Guarantee? No, it's no guarantee but it is the best thing, so pursue it. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we thank You for the wisdom that Your Word offers to us, the graciousness that You have shown us, the goodness that You have given to us in revealing truth and divine wisdom to us, Your people. Your Word is loaded with it, and we thank You for it. We thank You that You have made us to know all the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of the heavens, the mysteries of this life and the life that is to come. You have revealed it to us, babes, simpletons, fools, according to the world's estimation. But we know the riches and the treasures of Christ in whom dwells all the riches and the fullness of God Himself. And we thank You for that. We pray that You would open our eyes to live by wisdom, incline our hearts to it, to Your Word. Give us a hunger and a desire for truth and for Your Word and for the wisdom and righteousness that are contained therein. That we may honor You and that we may present to You hearts of obedience and wisdom and that we may love You as You are worthy of our love and our adoration and our praise. We thank You for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.